Our reading today comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 1b to 25. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we're looking at Philip the Evangelist from Acts chapter 8. The passage falls neatly, as you can see from the outline, um, into six sections with a big question which affects both our understanding and our experience of the Christian life today, particularly Christian initiation. So first of all, we have Philip and Stephen, verses 1 to 4. Then Philip evangelises the city of Samaria Simon the sorcerer professes faith, 9 to 13. The apostles, that's Peter and John, turn up, verses 14 to 17. And then Simon, rather curiously and oddly, um, tries to buy power, 18 to 24. 
And then to end, Peter and John evangelised other villages in the area on their way back to Jerusalem. And the big question, was this two-stage Christian initiation normal or abnormal? Typical or atypical? Was uh, the question as here, repent and believe, be baptised in water and then subsequently, some time later, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now if you have friends who are Catholics or Pentecostals, you may be aware that they see Christian initiation and growth in rather different ways, not only to each other, but also particularly from us who are Protestants. And this study may give us a bit more clarity and reassurance. So, Philip and Stephen are both made deacons, we read, Acts 6, verse 5. Now, they didn't confine themselves to the social and administrative task that they'd been appointed to do. They were both also evangelists. And like the apostles, they performed signs and wonders, miracles, in other words. They were apostolic delegates whose apostolic message was authenticated by God through this ability to do miracles. And both these men played a significant part in the launch of the Gentile mission. Jesus has said his message would be taken from Jerusalem to Judea and on to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Stephen's death that we looked at last week prompted the persecution and we read drove all the believers except the apostles out of Jerusalem and as they went the rank and file believers went gossiping the gospel and living out the Christian life and Philip was one of them taking the gospel first north to Samaria and later as we'll see next week down south to Gaza, to an Ethiopian Jew, what's known as a falasha, travelling home. Now, here we, there are words used such as preached, and while Peter did stand up in public and broadcast the message, it's closer to the original to think of the word meaning to bring good news of, variously expressed as the word or the kingdom or Jesus. They all amount to the same thing. So it's not so much a few high-profile spokesmen, but all ordinary Christians sharing the message and modelling the life. Now, what's happened here with this persecution in Jerusalem is that the devil has overplayed his hand. He thinks that persecution will stop the spread of the gospel. But how wrong he was. Because the opposite was the effect. As it has been numerous times in Christian history. In 1949, with the communist takeover of uh, China, 637 China inland mission personnel were forced to leave, communist ideology having no need for such Western religious ideas. But did it stop the spread of the gospel in China? 
Well, not a bit of it, because first of all, 286 of the missionaries relocated to other parts of Southeast Asia, and the church grew more there. But even more astonishingly, the indigenous Chinese themselves took the place of the missionaries, and the church, although driven underground, grew and grew. They may well have left in 1949 about a million Chinese believers, but today there are over 100 million Chinese believers. Now back to our account. Saul, we read, was watching, having approved of Stephen's stoning, and he was to find out that the gospel cannot be stopped. So, Philip in Samaria, we read verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many and many paralytics and cripples. So there was great joy in that city. So Christ was proclaimed, the crowds heard, They saw miraculous signs of people healed and salvation and healing resulted in great joy. Now, signs and wonders are said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 to be a mark of an apostle. But Philip wasn't an apostle. He was acting, though, as an apostolic delegate for this new stage of gospel expansion, a significant shift from the Jewish context to the Sumerian one. Now, miracles not only identify somebody acting under supernatural power, they also illustrate what God is in business for, namely restoration. And the framework is that we are all naturally in this world blinded by as well as trapped by the devil. Jesus Christ can both illuminate and liberate us. It was done then to illustrate his work and especially to authenticate the messenger and the message that he bore. But while restoration can begin now in accepting the word, it won't ever be complete this side of the return of Christ. Nonetheless, it is great cause for rejoicing. Now we need to appreciate something of the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were once the same, but over the years they had gone their separate ways and there was a pretty high degree of animosity between them by New Testament times. The origins went back a thousand years. If you look at modern Israel today, Samaria is the region in the northern part of what is called the West Bank of Palestine. Samaria, the city itself, is about where the W of West is. But today, it is a rather impressive ruined city, just to the west of the modern city of Nablus. Now, a thousand years before, that's just after the kings David and Solomon had reigned, the nation was divided in two, between north and south. The north centred on Samaria, and the south centred on Jerusalem. So in Jesus' day, the territory which we call the Holy Land, was divided up with Judea in the south, Samaria in the central area, 
the Galilee in the north, and the Decapolis to the east. Back in 722, they went their separate ways. In the 8th century, Samaria was overrun by the Assyrians, who exiled Samaritans to Assyria and brought in other nationalities to Samaria. Judah, you might remember, was miraculously delivered in 721 BC under King Hezekiah when the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem unsuccessfully. Now after the Assyrians came the Babylonians and in their day the empire managed to conquer Judah and its leadership was exiled to Babylon in 586. Now when the Persians in due course ousted the Babylonians, the Jews were allowed back around 400 BC. In rebuilding their temple, they declined help from the Samaritans, who eventually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, outside of Nablus. Samaria, though, was the old city by Jesus' day, which had uh, just been rebuilt by Herod the Great and renamed Sebaste, which is uh, the Emperor Augustus's name in Greek. And Herod had done it, basically to suck up to the emperor. Now the Jews despised the Samaritans as hybrids because they were mixed race. They had intermarried with all the various different tribes and people who the Assyrians had brought to Samaria. And they were of mixed religion. They adopted some of the practices of those tribes. So by Jesus' day, we learn from the Apostle John 4.9 that the Jews did not associate with Samaritans, though of course Jesus did. In fact, he saw a place for them in his kingdom, although in his earthly ministry, that was temporarily put on hold. But now the time had come. And we turn to verse uh, 9. And we see Simon the sorcerer, as he's known, professes faith. Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power, known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Now we know from Justin Martyr, a Christian from Samaria, writing around 140 AD, that Simon had been considered something of a god. And in fact, there were even statues of him in Rome itself. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised both men and women. Now Simon himself, we read, believed and was baptised and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Now Simon had boasted of himself, but when Philip came along, he boasted of Jesus the Christ. Now clearly Philip was, uh, Simon was gobsmacked at what Philip 
could do. And he, along with others, professed belief in Christ and was baptised. But was it genuine? We shall see. You see, just like TV plays, there are two stories here intertwined. The Simon story and the bigger story of the gospel expanding out from its Jewish origins to embrace the Samaritans. Peter and John and the apostles from Jerusalem now arrive and play a part in both these storylines. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The phrase, accepted the word of God, occurs when the first Jews in Jerusalem believed at Pentecost and later when the first Gentile, Cornelius, believed in Joppa. And it marks a new phase in the worldwide expansion of the gospel. But why no gift of the Spirit? Maybe even the apostles in Jerusalem were puzzled. After all, Peter at Pentecost had said, repent and believe and be baptised and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. So what's the problem? Why, having fulfilled the conditions, did they not receive the blessing in Samaria? Verse 15. When they, that's the apostles, arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot not said here, but I'm assuming that the reception of the Spirit here is as it was on the day of Pentecost, the first phase, and as with Cornelius, the start of the Gentile mission, and that it's something visible. The early expansion of the church could have been hopelessly fragmented with a Jewish Christian church, a Samaritan Christian church, and a Gentile Christian church, given the fact that the Jews weren't supposed to associate with Gentiles either. This way, by not only accepting the apostolic faith, but having Peter present for each of these three phases, each the same as each other, each imparting the Holy Spirit, who is the unifying agent incorporating all of us into the body of Christ, a united international church was secured. Well, back to Simon, who tries to buy power. Incidentally, the buying of ecclesiastical offices as clergy were able to do about 300 years ago for quite a long period, has always been called simony after this guy. Basically, it was a racket, as too much religion in uh, years gone by was. And what it meant was that um, a clergyman could buy the living, buy the income that went to a parish, the tithes. And... Uh, 
he could pocket the money, and then he'd hire other clergy to uh, do the work. He could have many, many parishes that he never visited, but he pocketed all the money, he paid them less, and he lived a very comfortable life. Well, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now Simon found this all electrifying and his inner motivation comes out when he asks to purchase such power. That shows him up for what he is, a showman. And he is firmly rebuked by Peter. Verse 20, Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Well, Will Simon, how do you evaluate his response? Verse 24. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Was that good enough or not? There's a verse in the writings of the Apostle Paul which goes like this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. It seems to me that Simon doesn't pray for his own salvation, but asks Peter to pray that the adverse penalty for his sin might not be inflicted on him. So sounds more like he regrets rather than repents. There's always the difference between genuine faith and professing faith. An eternal difference. Now the apostles then set about evangelising the villages on their way home. Verse 25, when they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, the big question. Was this two-stage Christian initiation normal or abnormal? Was it typical or atypical? Repent and believe, be baptised in water, and then subsequently, later, receive the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, If we have friends who are Catholics or Pentecostals, you may be aware that they see Christian initiation as a two-stage affair, but in different ways. Well, this may add a bit of clarity for us. Now, let's look at the question this incident raises. Catholics and Pentecostals see Christian initiation in two stages. For Catholics, it's largely outward and ceremonial, 
and for Pentecostals, it's largely inward and experiential. For Catholics, stage one is baptism and stage two is confirmation. They regard their bishops as successors of the apostles and by the laying on of hands, they impart the Holy Spirit. Anglicans, by the way, see bishops simply as praying for the strengthening of the Holy Spirit at confirmation. Confirmation is literally in the Latin confortis, which means with strength. So at confirmation, an Anglican bishop prays, O Lord, strengthen this Christian with your Holy Spirit. We think you receive Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit at your conversion. Pentecostals similarly expect a second stage. Conversion, the first stage, to be followed by what they call a baptism in the Holy Spirit, often by the laying on of hands, not those of a bishop, but simply by other Christians. Diagrammatically, you um, could display the two views like this, thinking of the horizontal x-axis as time, and the vertical y-axis as growth in godliness. Is it, the Christian life, a constant battle? But you get to the second stage, beyond that middle black line, and it's pretty plain sailing. Or is it a battle over time? There are setbacks and gains, but over time there is growth in godliness. Both Catholics and Pentecostals look to the Samaritan incident to support their views. But is this incident the norm or is it abnormal? Is it typical of New Testament practice or atypical? Your conclusion will affect your 21st century practice and expectation. Was it usual for the apostles to turn up and check every convert in the eastern Mediterranean and impart the Spirit? Was it usual for the gift of forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit as promised to be separated in time? To answer this, we have to look at the teaching and the practice of the apostles. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, promised for all believers that repentance and faith expressed in water baptism resulted in both forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. This is why Luke has a note of surprise in his account that the Samaritans had simply or only believed and been baptised into Christ. The word only implies that the two things were expected to go together. But contrary to expectation, the sign, water baptism, had been received without what it signified, spirit baptism. Now Paul on numerous occasions pointed out that without the spirit, you are not a Christian. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, Romans 8, 14 to 16. As for the apostolic Ofsteds to inspect evangelism, that was clearly not normally the case. It is completely impractical to imagine that the apostles would have been able to have kept track of such an expanding church, geographically expanding and numerically expanding. They'd be too far away and too numerous for them to do so. 
And of course, over time, it would have been impossible since they would have died. So, if it was not the norm, what is going on here? Why on hearing that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God, but had not received the spirit of God, did the apostles hot-foot it from Jerusalem? Now, there's no indication that they thought Philip's teaching was defective. Otherwise, Peter and John would have supplemented it, but they don't. They simply prayed for them to receive the Spirit. Well, given the centuries of Jewish-Samaritan schism, it's clear that God withheld the Spirit so that the Samaritan church had its origin in the same apostolic foundation as the Jerusalem church. The Jews of the two kingdoms, north and south, may have divided 1,000 years before, but now in Christ they are being reunited as the people of God. And similarly, Peter was involved when the first Gentile, the Roman centurion Cornelius, embraced the faith and received the Spirit. And Paul, when the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus were converted. The apostolic foundation, you see, ensured a united and not a fragmented church, which given that the Jews and the first Christians were all Jews, were not supposed to associate with either the Samaritans or the Gentiles, was a very real possibility. Now, this is not some novel idea. It does command a wide consensus as how best to explain this deviation from the New Testament norm. Jim Packer, eminent theologian, it may seem no more than a guess, but it is one that seems rational and relevant. John Stott, Philip's decision to proclaim Christ to the Samaritans was very, a very bold step to have taken. He writes, For centuries there had been bitter rivalry between Jews and Samaritans, and still at that time the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. But now not only had a Jew preached to Samaritans, but Samaritans had accepted the Jews' message what would happen? It was an exciting moment and a dangerous one too, he says. Was Philip right to have taken this step? Could Samaritans really have embraced the gospel? And more important, would they be acceptable to Jewish Christian believers? Or would the ancient Jewish-Samaritan schism survive in the church and become a disastrous division between Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians. Is it not reasonable to suppose, John Stott writes, that it was precisely in order to avoid the development of such a situation that God deliberately withheld the gift of the, his spirit from the Samaritan believers, or at least the outward evidence of the gift, until the two leading apostles came down to investigate and by the laying of the, on of their hands acknowledged and confirmed the genuineness of the Samaritans' conversion. Michael Green says the delay, sees the delay as 
a divine veto on schism in the infant church, a schism that could have slipped almost unnoticed into Christian fellowship as converts from the two sides of the Samaritan curtain found Christ without finding each other. That would have been a denial of the one baptism and all that it stood for. So to sum up, this Samaritan incident provides no biblical warrant either for a two-stage doctrine of Christian initiation as the norm, nor the practice of laying on of hands in order to inaugurate the supposed second stage. Peter and John pitching up was historically exceptional. There are no precise parallels today because there are no longer any Samaritans nor any apostles, apostles being the twelve who were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Today, because we're not Samaritans, we receive forgiveness and the Spirit together the moment we believe. And as for the laying on of hands, although it is an appropriate gesture of comfort and support at times, its use by which the Spirit is conveyed, whether in Episcopal confirmation or charismatic ministry, lacks support because neither bishops nor Pentecostal pastors are, nor could they be, apostles of Christ. And I hope that gives you reassurance that in accepting the word and believing in Christ, that that is sufficient. That is really all you need to do. Then those gifts of forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit are sufficient to see you through this life and ensure you reach the next one. Amen.